Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This podcast is for listeners who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean and learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi, a PhD candidate at Princeton University. Today we are here to talk to Professor uh, Rila Mukherjee, the author of India and the Indian Ocean World, From the Earliest Times to 1800, published by Springer in 2022. Rila Mukherjee is a professor of history at the University of Hyderabad, India. She has authored six monographs, singly and jointly edited nine volumes, contributed 46 chapters to national and international publications, guest edited themed issues uh, in two international journals, and published 28 articles in national and international journals on oceanic histories. So we have an esteemed guest that I'm really excited to talk to today. And today's book, India and the Indian Ocean World from the Earliest Times to 1800, uh, integrates the latest scholarly literature on the entire Indian Ocean region, from East Africa to China. Issues such as India's history, India's changing status in the region, and India's cross-cultural networking over a long period are explored in this book. It is organized in specific themes in 13 chapters. It incorporates a wealth of research on India's strategic significance in the Indian Ocean arena throughout history. It enriches the reader's understanding of the emergence of the Indian Ocean Basin as a global arena for cross-cultural networking and nation building. It discusses issues of trade and commerce, the circulation of ideas, peoples, and objects and social and religious themes focusing on Hinduism, Buddhism, and Islam. The book provides a refreshingly different survey of India's connected history in the Indian Ocean region, starting from the archaeological record and ending with the coming of empire. Welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, and thanks so much, Professor Lila Mukherjee, for taking the time to talk about your book. Thank you, Amr. That was a quite an introduction, lovely introduction. So now, what would you like me to talk about? Uh, yes. Can you please start us off by saying a few words about yourself 
that is where you grew up, where you went to school, and how you became interested in maritime history uh, and, and India's history and any influential mentors that you had along the way. Right. So I was born in um, Calcutta. It's a city on East Coast India, and it's called Kolkata now. And Calcutta, of course, was the first place where the British set up a colony, the East India Company. The first official settlement which transformed into a colony is Calcutta, but that is not really why I um, got interested in maritime history. Well, you know, so I did my schooling in Calcutta. I did my college in New Delhi and uh, my master's in Kolkata again. And then I um, went off to Paris. I went off to France to do my MPhil. Of course, they don't call it MPhil over there. Uh, they call it DLR, which is the Pum de Cuda Profondi, and, uh, and then a PhD. And there I worked with um, a very well-known Indonesianist, a maritime historian called Dani Lombar. But at that time, I was not, uh, my PhD proposal and what I actually ultimately did my PhD work on was not really on anything remotely to do with the sea. I worked on silk merchants and the silk trade at a place called Kasim Bazar in Bengal. We are still on East Coast India. And the reason I did that, of course, was um, it was easier for me to it was easier for me to access the local literature in Bengali because I am a Bengali. Uh, the problem, of course, in India, as you know, is you know there are lots of languages. So generally, when we research, we tend to stick to the area we come from because that makes it that much easier for us to to uh, access the local literature. Now, so why did I get interested in maritime history? So I worked on the Silk Road, as I said. I worked on the Silk Road at a place called Kasim Bazar, uh, which is in northern Bengal. It still exists today. Uh, it's close by to the 18th century capital of Mushidabad, which is also a town that still exists. And so I was essentially doing land history. And, uh, but I was dealing with foreign companies, the foreign merchants, and their dealings with the Indian merchants at Kasim Bazaar in the Silk Rate. And then I faced two problems, essentially, while writing my PhD thesis. One was that, you know, I mean, my tools at that time, my temporal framework, my time framework, was the 17th and 18th century. Now, you know, the time that we study um, is always conditioned by the archives we get. So, you know, I was essentially using the East India Company documents, uh, both the English company and the French company documents. I don't read Dutch. So the Dutch company, the Dutch archive was close to me. And uh, so the English and the French company documents uh, start off only from the 17th century. So I was working on my my time framework, my temporal framework uh, was the 17th and the 18th centuries. But, you know, I was looking at silk and how the silk traders had evolved and how they were impacted by the coming of the European companies. 
and i felt you know to find out the roots of this business this trade in silk i had to go further back and so that was one problem the time framework you know and of course i couldn't go further back i had to start in the 17th century itself so that was one problem that i faced the other problem was you know that i felt that i was essentially dealing with a commodity that grows on land but is shipped out by sea so the maritime dimension was completely absent and uh, you must keep in mind that this was the 1980s there was already the a generation of maritime historians working on india like oshin das gupta and michael pearson few others and they had a very different way of looking at india's maritime history uh from the earlier generation of maritime historians like boxer for example because boxer was talking about sea borne empires you know so he was actually looking at uh the indian ocean space as something you know where people from outside come in and make an impact so oshin das gupta and michael pearson were trying to revise that view and they were trying to argue for a particular a kind of a primacy if i may say so of asian merchants in the period even uh, during 1500 1800 so the work of maritime historians started attracting me but there's nothing maritime in my phd thesis which was later published as merchants and companies in bengal uh kasim bazar and jyotiya in the 18th century after that i started looking more at bengal's position again i'm still i i was still sticking with bengal because um uh, for the literature in the local language and how far bengal was really a maritime how, how far it had a maritime culture how far it was a maritime space and whether it had a maritime economy at all so and my conclusion was the bengal was not really a very maritime place it's uh, if you look at a map of india and if you look at the place of bengal in it it's 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 a fragmented estuary so uh, the shipping is more estuarine rather than maritime and also in bengal lies in the north of the bay of bengal you know that's a region uh, historically always subject to very very vicious typhoons um you know if you think of the bengal or present bangladesh and myanmar border you know we are talking about the tip of the funnel here you know always very very susceptible to extremely vicious um, cyclones so before uh, i mean in the age of sail you know uh, before the age of steam a uh, shipping was always very very coastal shipping was never really very maritime and it's really from the 18th century onwards the second half of the 18th century the shipping actually transforms if you look at the grand maritime routes you know uh they essentially i mean coming from let's say west asia they would essentially always you know bypass bengal you know they would uh, touch the peninsula and move up the chola coast that is the peninsula coast east coast india and then go on to southeast asia so i um was interested because i felt that bengal was uh, a a case apart i mean if we are going to call it a maritime region i mean it uh, presented certain features you know which uh, did not make it very maritime so i started researching on maritime history that's it thank you for this detailed answer and going through your journey to the maritime history of india um we can now turn to the book and its chapters uh the book consists of 13 chapters with an introduction and conclusion 
But before I start talking about the chapters, uh, can you let us know what do we gain by having a long durée perspective from archaeological times to the 19th century to understand India's history in the Indian Ocean? Well, I, mean, I had two objectives in writing India in the Indian Ocean world. One was that even now in uh, teaching in the college and university curricula and in policy making in India, there's a lot of maritime blindness. We call it maritime blindness. And despite, you know, G20, India hosting G20 and talking about maritime connectivity, it doesn't really go back beyond the 19th century. And this is partly attributed to the fact that the English, when they came, you know, they initially said that Indians have a fear of seafaring and they attributed it to something called Kalapani or black water. But Kalapani as a concept only comes up in the 18th century, uh, late 18th, basically it's a 19th century concept that you cross the Kalapani, you lose your caste. And this was essentially linked to the movement of global labor, you know, uh, the indentured labor that was sent across. For whatever reason, when um, universities or colleges or uh, think tanks in India they talk about the maritime domain in India. They only go back as far as only the 19th century. And they don't really go further back to understand why and how this notion of Kalapani actually came into being. I mean, that is why I stopped at 1800. You know, I didn't, I, I didn't find uh, uh, all these strictures against going to the sea very interesting. And in any case, I stopped at 1800 because, you know, after that, the sea changes very radically. And uh, I felt I did not have so much to talk about. So this is one uh, reason why I wrote the book, uh, to counter the blindness, maritime blindness. The second reason is much more prosaic. <laughs> since the 1980s, you know, since people like Oshin Das Gupta and Michael Pearson and a whole host of other people, there's been an almost an explosion of maritime studies uh, on the Indian Ocean world. And um, I felt that I just needed to put everything in one place. I mean, the book does not claim to be original in that sense. It's just a handy reader, um, which talks about India's place in the maritime world of the Indian Ocean. I do not subscribe to the fact of... Um, India's superiority or anything like that in the Indian Ocean. I'm sure we have a locational centrality. But uh, in the book, if you go through the book, you'll see that I first uh, look at the different coastlines to find out their linkages, the networks and their history to show which of the coastlines had more of maritime circulations. And after that, I take up certain themes, you know, of uh, India's place in the Indian Ocean world. That's it. Right. And and the book synthesizes a large uh, amount of scholarship in a very uh, reader-friendly way, which I really uh, find very useful for students as well. Um, what were the main challenges that you face in trying to bring together scattered literature about India and the Indian Ocean? What were the challenges? And Yeah, and bringing coherence to, to this plethora of literature that we have about... I don't know. I, 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 don't know. I, mean, I think I've been thinking about this book for a very long time. 
you know, this book actually wrote itself, Ahmed. This, uh, I wrote this book during COVID-19. And um, I was actually not in Hyderabad then. I was in Calcutta. And the book kind of wrote itself. Uh, you know, COVID-19, of course, uh, we were all under lockdown. India had a particularly stringent lockdown in the first phase, in the first wave. And uh, so it was a good time to write a book. There were no distractions. It was very quiet. Uh, challenges in weaving together the disparate elements? No, no. I did not. I mean, it's maybe, I think it's the way all of us writers work, you know. We have bits and pieces and we, you know, keep the tabs open and we do, we do a section at a time. The only channel I, the challenge that I did face was, of course, the language challenge because whatever I wrote, for example, if you look at the chapter called Indian and Chinese Visions of the Sea, I mean, it was all in translation. I don't read Chinese. I don't have Persian. I don't read Arabic. So this could turn out to be a potential shortcoming because I have not uh, looked at the documents I cite in the original. I've just used translation. So I think that's what only challenge I faced. And I was always very conscious of the fact that I was using translations. But then I had no options. Uh, despite these uh, limitations, as every scholar would face and trying to gather uh, different uh, language sources and materials, uh, yet the book succeeds in bringing together uh, the scholarship up to date to think about India's maritime history. So I would like to ask about this notion of maritime history. What makes uh, a, his a certain history maritime history? And what can it offer for understanding the subcontinent's past versus a history that is from within, let's say, to the outside? Sorry, could you repeat that once again, please? Yes. What's your What's your view of the notion of maritime history? How do you view it? How do you define it? And how do you find it useful for uh, narrating India's past? Yeah, well, uh, let me answer the second question first. How, how and why do I find maritime history useful for, for, for talking about India's past? Well, you know, in... As far as the second question is concerned, what I really was doing was not so much maritime history, but coastal history. In other words, I was looking at standing on the coast, the different coastlines, and looking out to sea. And because if you look at, um, you know, a huge landmass like India, and uh, a reasonably uh, regional-based knowledge production of the various polities, they've always been very centrally land-oriented. So the moment we get on the coast, you know, we get a completely different pers perspective on uh, the kind of uh, uh, interactions that the various coastlines were having with lands across the seas. And here, of course, there is a limitation because unlike the Chinese, the Chinese actually, um, for whatever reason, um, they have left us far, far more bureaucratic records, administrative records of postal administration. We don't really find that in the case of India, even of the postal uh, polities. So you'll find that, you know, sometimes I've taken the help of iconography or even literature 
to imagine the maritime domain. So that is what I have to say about your second question. So the first, uh, the first question that you asked was, what makes maritime history different? Uh, that would be an extension of the answer I gave you just now. But instead of standing on the coast and looking out to sea, I would look at maritime history um, as something like, you know, that I am on a ship and I'm looking at the land. And, you know, Michael Pearson once said, I think it was his last, uh, last publication uh, in the Journal of the Indian Ocean World, which is brought out by Gwen Campbell's um, Indian Ocean World Center at McGill, right? He talks about the ship. And then he talks about leaving the ship and going to the shore and then moving up the shore to the port itself. So, you know, at various stages, you know, one sense of being also changes, you know. I mean, you're on a ship, you're in a small place, it's crowded. Michael Pearson, for example, has written on religious devotion when he talks about the Hajj, but he's also talking about, he's talked about violence on shipboard because a lot of people, different kinds of people are crammed together. And then there's this sense of liberation as you step out of the ship onto the shore. But then, you know, there's a problem also because you're on foreign soil, so you have to make your contacts, you have to uh, make your negotiations. Uh, you probably meet somebody from your community who's there, who's going to ease your way into the market. And then you move on to, um, to the port, the port structure itself, you know, from the shore. And here I'd like to bring in something that Oshin Dasgupta, who was also Michael Pearson's very close collaborator, <clears throat> talked about. He said that, you know, I mean, there is... Um, Oshin Dasgupta did not talk so much about ships. Michael Pearson would talk about ships. But Oshin Dasgupta said that there's the port, there's the, you know, there's the shore, there's the port, and then there's the port city behind the port, you know. I mean, the port is the actual physical infrastructure. But then there's a port city or a maritime city, which is not necessarily located on the coast, you know. It's a maritime city that actually mediates the relations between the port and the interior, the provincial or the central capital. So I would like to say that, you know, um, if we look at maritime history that way, you know, coming from the ship, stepping out on shore, and then moving back, moving into the country itself, you get a very different perspective on the on the on the country you're visiting. I mean, you look at the, you read the travelers' accounts. A traveler account who comes by land, let's say through Central Asian route, and somebody who's coming by sea has a very very different perspective on the place that sea and Indians are in. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Uh, in, in your second chapter, seeing the Indian Ocean. Um, you have a section about Indian Ocean as method, thinking about periodization and scale in the ocean. Uh, what do you think of the Indian Ocean as a, as a space to generate theory and to think about methodology of writing history? Um, how do you think your uh, experience and, and, and readings have helped you to think about the Indian Ocean as a, as a method rather than just a geographic container? Yeah. Oh, well, you know, I uh, don't really uh, deal with this aspect myself, but of late, you know, there has been a lot of work on the Indian Ocean as a, the oceanic humanities. And uh, in fact, a lot of the work on the Indian Ocean 
is not carried out by historians now, but uh, more by English departments and literature people. And so, you know, people like Antoinette Burton, then uh, Meg Samuelson, they've written about the Indian Ocean as a space for generating theory, and Isabel Hofmeyer, of course. Uh, yeah, so I don't know. I mean, I'm not very moved into that. Uh, I think I'm more old fashioned that way, that I still see it as a space of history. I feel um, geography, uh, you know, has more of inputs or tend to the Indian Ocean, you know, like the work of uh, Steinberg, Kimberly Peters, and uh, anthropologists also writing on the ocean. There's a wonderful piece I read by Lindsay Bremner called Folded Oceans, where she's actually looking at the Indian Ocean all the way, I think, from the Lapset uh, Namu Corridor in Tanzania and Kenya all the way up to China. So these are the kind of ways, I think these are very imaginative ways, looking at the ocean and also Steinberg's earlier work, you know, the social construction of the sea. Literature, I'm, I don't think I'm really qualified to comment on that, you know. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Uh, and indeed, uh, you take a geographic approach uh, in the subsequent chapters, uh, looking at uh, the, the maritime boundaries and even land boundaries of India from the north to south, east to west, starting from Sri Lanka, moving to the Bay of Bengal, the Arabian Sea, Africa, and the port cities of India, and then uh, discussing different textile crops, uh, animals, diseases, and the literature of marvels, yeah, uh, yes, and until we move to the to the to the last three chapters. So, in, in looking at the different directions uh, of India's engagement with its uh, let's say neighbors uh, across the sea or over land, we find many themes that interconnect the subcontinent to its neighbors, and different historians have picked different angles to look at these connectivities. Um, so if you would talk about uh, how can historians think about uh, periodization when it comes to uh, India's connectivity within the broader region, what would be, let's say, uh, the most significant uh, uh, markers of this periodization moving across the centuries as you do? Significant markers of periodization. Is that what you asked me? Yes. So can we think about volume or scale or uh, intensification? 
or decline? Like, what would be a useful, uh, let's say, uh, markers for pre-diabetes? Yeah, you know, something I would be very excited doing, but I don't think that we have enough documentation as yet, um, is to bring in more of the climate and epidemiological features into the Indian Ocean. There is a bit on that in my book, but, uh, you know, a lot of the withdrawal of uh, polities from the Indian Ocean have been explained purely in political or economic terms. But disease or drought, climate change may have played a, may have been factors as well. I mean, the 15th century uh, retreat of the Chinese from the, with the Mings from the Indian Ocean, you know, um, was earlier said that you know, it was a political decision and it was just getting too expensive and they stopped it. But now there has been data coming out of China, you know, that wow, there were droughts and famines and the minks were already squeezed uh, financially. And at such a point in time, it was actually very, very difficult to finance the treasure fleet. Uh, China, of course, is a big monolith in the Indian Ocean, but even the smaller, smaller polities that do collapse in the 15th century the 15th century is actually very important, I think, you know, talking about realization for the Indian Ocean, not because the Portuguese are coming in, but, you know, that's a time when um, quite a few of the polities in the Eastern Indian Ocean, like Sri Lanka, well, Sri Lanka's central, actually, uh, but the Khmer domains, they, I mean, the, we see from the clearing evidence, you know, that there is substantial um evidence of climate change, you know, and uh, there's a certain amount of desertification and at the same time excessive rainfall in other parts. In other words, the climate was behaving in an extremely erratic manner, which actually led to the decline. I mean, it, it stopped the irrigation in Sri Lanka, you know, the hydraulic feature in Sri Lanka. And the Khmer domains also, you know, the, the, that was another hydraulic bagan in Burma. So uh, these played havoc with the hydraulic uh, system in these countries. So I would like to see more of climate. <laughs> I would like to see how far climate change is linked to disease. In other words, what triggers what. Uh, these might well provide a different... Uh, uh, perspective on periodization in the Indian Ocean because you know the traditional perspective uh, of periodization of course is um, the early period then uh, the age of uh, the early empires in the Indian Ocean then uh, Buddhism uh, going up to the 13th century as a great marker linking the Indian Ocean both west and east <coughs> and then 1500 1800 is seen as the period when the Europeans come in and by 1800, according to this story, this narrative, you know, it's all cut and dry. The British are here, the French are there, the Dutch are there, the Portuguese have gone and, uh, well, you know, the story is over, so to speak. But I think if we look at disease climate as markers, we might get a very different perspective on periodization in the Indian Ocean. I hope that right. answers your question. Uh, yes, it does. And and in thinking about geography, um, if you would compare and contrast uh, 
the way historians have covered the Eastern Indian Ocean versus the Western Indian Ocean and narrating uh, the broader oceanic history of India. Um, where do you see the pitfalls and uh, let's say the, the, the gaps that future historians should think about in writing about uh, India and the Indian Ocean? You know, uh, here, again, you know, I mean, the geographical centrality of the Indian Ocean, of India and the Indian Ocean, makes it very easy to uh, divide into uh, Western Indian Ocean and Eastern Indian Ocean. If you look at the historiography on the Indian Ocean, yes, most historians initially worked on the Western Indian Ocean. In the 80s up to the 90s, I think we had more data on the Western Indian Ocean than on the Eastern Indian Ocean. Then, um, and this was mainly the work of Australian scholars, they started working on Southeast Asia. And Southeast Asia, I mean, that naturally attracted attention on the Eastern Indian Ocean. And then I think in the last 20 years or so, there have been a whole lot of non-Chinese scholars working on China in the Indian Ocean. Indian Ocean. They've been talking about a maritime Asia. So now the pendulum has swung towards the Eastern Indian Ocean more than the Western Indian Ocean. Now pitfalls, I don't know. I mean, uh, we are just correcting the balance at this moment. But there is one pitfall, you know, no historian uh, really specializes in the whole of the Indian Ocean as a whole. It's either the Western Indian Ocean or the Eastern Indian Ocean. I myself know the Eastern Indian Ocean better than I know the Western Indian Ocean. When I wrote my wrote the chapter on <coughs> the Western Indian Ocean, I think it was chapter 4 or something, at, or maybe 5, I, I actually had to do a lot of reading, which I did not really have to do when I was talking about Southeast Asia or China. But that's a personal pitfall. Oh, But in the future... Um, I really don't see any scholar coming up who would have equal command of languages both in the Western Indian Ocean and the Eastern Indian Ocean. So that would be a pitfall that would stay with us. The book, you talk about the problem of naming maritime spaces. And I would like to ask you about the suggestions by some scholars who propose the name Afro-Asian Ocean rather than Indian Ocean. Yeah. Uh, what is what are your thoughts on this proposition? Well, you know, I mean, um, I think Michael Pearson first used the term, and of course, the definitive work on the Afro-Asian Afro Ocean has been done by Philippe Bourgeois. Um, I like Bourgeois' work, but if you actually look at Bourgeois' work of the Afro-Asian Sea, of the Afro-Asian Ocean, he essentially stops around 1500. After 1500, he is not really able to show so much of Africa coming into the Indian Ocean, except that is there geographically. So, I think to set the balance right, yes, we should certainly bring in Africa. I mean, the earlier generation of Indian Ocean historians did not even acknowledge the existence of Africa uh, in the Indian Ocean. So, in that sense, I think Boja's book is a very, very good intervention. But, as I said, after 1500, then what Right. Uh, so in, in writing this book, uh, you wrote the book in a quite accessible style and you provide the discussion points at the end of each chapter with a list of uh, the U.S. bibliography for uh, future researchers uh, to pick up on. Um, 
who do you think uh, or who do you hope will read the, this book and what sort of impact would you like it to have? Well, you know, one thing is I haven't seen reviews of this book anywhere. So unless I get a few reviews, I really wouldn't know. I mean, uh, how my target audience is reacting to the book. What is my target audience? Uh, I would call it uh, an advanced reader target audience. The general reader who is interested in the Indian Ocean or some kind of a maritime specialist who wants all the facts in one place. But until I see a few reviews, I really don't know how far this book is going to be useful. It's nice of you to say that, you know, uh, discussion points are there, so on and so forth. I mean, there were mentored classroom exercises in the hope that, you know, uh, there would be a substantial uh, course on maritime history and where this book would feature in terms of the segment on the Indian Ocean. But uh, yeah, I really find it useful, actually. And, and uh, the chapters could be assigned even independently for undergraduate students yes. or yes. grad students. And the discussion yes. points are really good to start thinking about uh, the different parts of the Indian Ocean and how it all comes together at the end. Yeah, that's nice of you. It's kind of you to say that, Ahmed. I was actually a bit disappointed with the discussion point because I felt I was running out of steam towards the end, you know. I mean, it does happen, you know, when you write a book. You, at one point, you get awfully tired, you know. And I was really getting tired of, you know, doing these discussion points. And I thought, oh my God, why did I even suggest to my publisher that I would put in classroom exercises, discussion points. Actually, I'd done a piece just before then for a journal you may be familiar with. I think it comes out of Michigan. Well, it comes out of Hawaii, but I think it's a Michigan press. It's called World History Connected. Are you familiar with it? Oh, uh, yes. Yeah. So, Mark Jason Gilbert, you know, would always, Mark would always insist on discussion points, you know, classroom exercises. And I'd just done one of those, you know. So I thought it might be helpful if I had it here. But as I said, I got really tired to a end of adding on these discussion points. I mean, I felt I was running out of ideas, you know. I mean, I, I feel in retrospect that the discussion points could have been a little more imaginative. Now, this is really great for, for a book that came out of the pandemic. Not many people can, you know, take no, pride. You'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. You know, I mean, uh, last year we all traveled a lot because none of us had traveled, you know, the last three years. And we were mainly meeting in Europe. And most of my colleagues had actually written pandemic books. So academics actually had a very good COVID. You know, <laughs> academics by nature are very solitary people. And uh, we like to hang out with other academics. So if we couldn't hang out with other academics, and the only thing we could do was write a book. And many of us did that. Right. I even started this podcast, Ashley, uh, to 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 fill the gap and fill the void of the pandemic to talk to other people yeah. and share the scholarship. So, yeah, I mean, we made uh, lemonade out of lemon, I guess. And uh, I'm really glad that you took on this project and you went on publishing the book. And uh, I hope that listeners will pick up the book and find the 13 chapters useful, uh, as I said, independently or connected to, uh, to to have an introduction to the different themes and periods and geographies of the Indian Ocean. 
Uh, well, uh, Rilo, we've taken a lot of your time and uh, we would like to ask you our final uh, traditional question, which is uh, what are you working on now or hope to work on if you can tell us more about your current or future projects? Yeah, I actually am on the contract with the same publisher. Um, it's it's a, it's a book on global history. I, I do wear a hat, you know, I have a global history hat as well because I, I'm the chief editor of a journal, you know, which is called the Asian Review of World History as well. I pitch my journal here, but this is a global history and uh, it's called Europe in the World. And uh, again, periodization is 1350, 1650, very significant years in the history of Europe. Now, I'd like to talk a little bit about it because I'm quite enjoying writing that book. I finished off two chapters. Uh, the manuscript's due at the end of the year. Um, you know, years ago, years ago, uh, almost 30, no, 20 years back, I wrote a textbook on European history, which was mainly for uh, Indian universities. And the Indian universities had then introduced a course at the undergraduate level called The Transformation of Europe. 1350, 1650, which was essentially, you know, um, century by century, mainly Renaissance, geographical discoveries, quote-unquote, uh, ending with the 17th century depressions. It was essentially a very Europe-centered, Europe-oriented uh, course. And so I wrote about two, no, I wrote three textbooks, which were actually, I like to think they were very useful. And then, of course, I mean, I, I taught that paper, Transformation of Europe, for I think some 12 years or 13 years. And then I moved to Hyderabad. I used to teach in Calcutta before. So then I moved to Hyderabad. When I moved to Hyderabad, they did have that uh, course. By the time we, of course, we started the semester system. Earlier, we were on an annual system. And in Hyderabad, somebody else was teaching that course. So alas, uh, it wasn't called the transformation of Europe. It was called the rise of the modern West. But alas, I didn't get a chance to teach that course because somebody was teaching it and teaching it for a long time and teaching it very well too. So I was actually given a course for of an earlier period called medieval societies. And earlier that medieval societies meant medieval European societies, but I changed it, you know. I, I changed it to bring in the Arab world. I changed it to bring in a bit of China. I brought in Africa. I Yes, I brought in Africa because I found Africa very interesting and very significant in the medieval world. So I was, uh, you know, so I was pottering along with medieval societies. And then I thought that why don't I uh, reinvigorate this book of Europe, but in a very different way. So the book that I'm writing now, of which I'm very happy to say that just this evening before we started this interview, I finished the second chapter, finished a draft of the second chapter. It's called Europe in the World, 1350-1650. So you see, Europe in the world, it's no longer European history, but Europe and the world that Europe is interacting with. So, and that's divided into modules, not chapters. And each module can be independent, which you also pointed out for the Indian Ocean book. This is more geared towards students. It's got seven modules, which can be used by teachers or students independently or the whole thing as part of a regular course, a longer course. Um, so uh, I wrote two introductions and I just finished the second introduction today. So the first introduction is Europe in the World 1350-1650. Uh, the second introduction 
which I call General Introduction to, is called The World and Europe, 1350-1650. So, you know, I, I'm looking at the same period from the point of view of Europe into the world and from the point of view of global history and how Europe is performing within that global history. And after that, there are seven modules, as I said, and each module will have uh, a short one-page introduction. I think this book will be much more accessible to students. Um, it will have a minimum of references and citations, uh, also to make it much easier for the student to access the reading material. Congrats on finishing the draft of the second chapter, and we look forward to see the book out. Uh, I'm just curious if, if you are thinking of engaging Sanjay Subramaniam's book, Europe's India, and thinking about Europe and the world or the Indian Ocean. Yeah, well, I still have to read that, you know. I'm glad you found that out because, no, I'm glad you pointed that out because, yeah, he has been writing on that vein for a while, you know, even Portly Encounters, for example. So, yeah, you're right. I, I need to. I no, no, don't have the facility of Sanjay, you know, with his languages. I think he knows or speaks about seven, you know. I mean, he has a tremendous advantage there. I think mine would be a much smaller a subsystem to Sanjay's sweeping vision of the world. Yes, I, I, would, I, would just, yeah. I would just be curious to see how you um, write about Europe and the world in connection to, to India and the Indian Ocean as well. And we will I can send you a draft and you can comment on it at some time. I have your email. I would be very happy to do so. Right. Uh, well, uh, thank you um, for joining us today and thank you for listening to today's episode in which we explored India and the Indian Ocean world from the earliest times to 1800, published by Springer in 2022. This is your host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.